0: The price of oil has broken $60 for the first time in more than a year. But in a strange twist, as oil rises, so too do the battery metals that seek to replace it. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane. Also on today's show, the rise of
1: the hairy zombies... What to make of the weirdest earnings season in America's recent corporate history. The reason people are betting on these zombie companies is they're so undervalued because they almost went under. The bet now is that they'll come roaring back. And why remote work is playing havoc with American taxes.
2: It's huge. Billions of dollars are at stake. It's hard to imagine what's going to happen if they lose all that money.
0: But first, oil is making a comeback. On February the 8th, the price of Brent crude, the international benchmark, rose above $60 a barrel for the first time in more than a year. Battery metals too are enjoying a run up in value. The prices of cobalt, lithium and certain rare earth metals needed for making batteries have soared since late last year. Nickel and copper are enjoying an even longer climb are these Twin Peaks evidence of competing bets about the fuels of the future? Or is something more complex at work?
3: Last year, of course, there was this huge drop-off in the price of oil. At one point, a futures contract briefly went negative, which was very strange.
0: Charlotte Howard is our energy and commodities editor.
3: You saw prices really plummet especially at the end of the first quarter and into the second quarter. And more recently, there's been quite a recovery. And at the same time, across other commodities, you see rising prices as well. And particularly interesting, I think, is the run-up in battery prices. So cobalt, lithium, certain rare earth minerals, they've seen a really big run-up as well.
0: Let's start with oil, Charlotte. As you say, the price was absolutely crushed a year ago. So how much of the recent surge can be explained by rising demand in expectation of a recovery?
3: Absolutely. So China has really helped support the oil market, particularly through the second half of last year, where Chinese buyers were soaking up a lot of the excess oil on the market. But also you see some demand recovering in India with more people using cooking fuels people are interested in Biden's stimulus proposal. But really, you know, there are a lot of constraints still, the vaccine rollout has been very faltering. And you have, of course, these new contagious strains of COVID. So the big thing that's really supporting the oil price right now is not demand so much as supply, restrained supply. And much of that is due to Saudi Arabia, which has really indicated its support for trying to hold back its own production to boost the oil price. And in January, it said it would cut an additional a million barrels of oil a day in February and March. And then elsewhere in the world, restrictions on capital spending have continued to restrain the total supply. That's both in America, which of course is the world's biggest oil producer now, but also in other parts of the world, you see that people have deferred big projects. Existing oil projects, of course, their output declines over time because there's a finite resource in any given well. The other thing is that Iran, which is a massive oil producer, Its exports have been held back due to sanctions during the Trump era. And on February 7th, in a TV interview on CBS, Biden reaffirmed that he wasn't going to come back to the negotiating table unless Iran stopped enriching uranium. And so that suggests that supply of crude is not going to come back online. And so that also has helped to support prices.
0: Okay, what about the market for battery metals? What explains the run up in prices there?
3: Demand explains some of the run-up in prices, especially in China. In December, sales of electric cars in China surpassed 224,000. That's more than 9% of total car sales in China, which is pretty big milestone. Um, but there were also limitations to supply that have been important really over the past year. So disruption of ports in South Africa, which is a big hub for shipping cobalt around the world, is essential part of lithium-ion batteries for now. China, uh, which produces huge share of the world's rare earths. There were problems with mines in Indonesia, nickel mines, and, and protests in New Caledonia, which also affected nickel. So there were some supply constraints as well. But in the long term, there is expectation that demand for these metals will continue to rise. And that's in part because of electric cars, but also because of all of the infrastructure, the green infrastructure that governments say they're going to continue to build and that the private sector wants to invest in over the coming decades.
0: Now, what you've just said suggests that there could be a a time limit on how long the prices of oil and battery metals can can rise together, because oil is the fuel of the past, you might say, and battery metals are part of the fuel of the future. Do you think that these two markets will diverge at some point?
3: I think eventually they probably will, but something quite interesting might happen in the short term. So it's tempting to make some kind of conclusion about the run-up in recent prices, about competing bets on which fuels will continue to power the world going forward. And I think instead, there's a very good chance that through the 2020s, you see something a little strange happening, which is that oil prices remain elevated and battery metal prices remain elevated. And that's really because of the supply constraints on the oil side, where you have a huge amount of pressure on publicly listed oil companies from investors to restrain their capital spending. And this really predated COVID, that you had years of poor returns in the oil sector, as well as fear about future regulation. And those fears intensified during COVID. Even ExxonMobil, which had been the most bullish of all the supermajors in December, say that it was going to slash its capital program And so this could mean that you continue to have prices that are actually kind of high, not because demand is booming and there's huge long-term expectations about the future of oil demand, but rather demand continues to subside slowly or remain flat, depending on how aggressive governments are. But it's really the supply side that holds back
0: prices. And at the same time, as you've already suggested, enthusiasm for green technology is gathering momentum all the time.
3: That's right. So you continue to see people hugely enthusiastic about battery powered cars. Tesla is more valuable than the next 8 biggest car makers combined. In January, GM took this interesting step of saying that it would try to sell all EVs by 2035. JP Morgan Chase, a bank expects EVs to rise to 15% of the market by 2030 compared with just 3% last year. So that demand for electric cars will help support demand in turn for the metals that you need to produce batteries. Um, But copper also, of course, is essential for all kinds of green projects, including the wiring in solar, wind, transmission lines, 5G. So there's a lot of support for some of these metals. And so you see big long-term demand for the metals used in green infrastructure. At the same time, you see that traditional cycle of investment that has happened in the oil sector. In which high prices prompts more capital spending to boost supply, that that loop is starting to unravel. So you may have this sort of strange pattern in which the recent rally is a kind of a sign of things to come, where you have higher prices both for oil and for the metals that could help eventually replace it.
0: Charlotte Howard, thank you. Thank you. Only so much market movement is readily explainable by the fundamental forces of supply and demand. The extraordinary stock market volatility of past weeks, most notably of GameStop, has been driven by something that in theory is impossible. In practice, it's not just possible, it can be extremely profitable predatory trading. Today's episode of our daily podcast, The Intelligence, explains how a crowd of Redditors made serious money by picking off traders in distress, and why it's likely to happen again. Listen to The Intelligence wherever you get your podcasts.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend,
0: Next, is this the weirdest earnings season in recent corporate history? Nearly four fifths of the big industrial firms in the S&P 500 index have now reported their performance for the final quarter of 2020. And despite everything, most of them, from banks and semiconductors to big pharma and professional services, have reported
1: rising profits. This has been a weird earnings season for corporate America. Four-fifths of the companies have beat the projected earnings, and companies have topped the estimates from analysts by over 17% in the aggregate. Vijay Vaitheeswaran is our U.S. business editor. Of course, the ones that are hit by the pandemic, like energy and hospitality, did badly. But most have actually done quite well. And even companies that are losing money have shot up and have performed much better than those that are making money. Strikingly, shares at money-losing firms have done better than the average share price performance by roughly 40% over the last year. So really, these kind of zombie firms are the ones that are doing the best in the market at the moment.
0: So why are these companies that, as you say, should be dead and buried, posting such strong results?
1: Now, this is actually the the secret to understanding what's happening in American financial markets. Investors are convinced that a a robust economic recovery is coming in 2021 that will pull these firms away from the abyss. One analyst I spoke to called these zombie companies as having hair on them, as being so undesirable otherwise, but which have the chance really to take off when the recovery comes. Uh, They think that the economy is coming back quite strongly, the US economy being stronger than that in Europe or other developed economies, based on two factors. One is a bet that there's going to be big stimulus coming from a democratically controlled Congress and White House that'll boost the economy and give more money to ordinary people to spend. And the second factor, they're betting on all these vaccines that have started to be rolled out, that the concerns that people have about the pandemic will recede, that the second half of this year will be almost normal, and people will be out free spending back at the shopping malls and movie theatres and restaurants. Those are the assumptions that are underpinning the optimism. And the reason people are betting on these zombie companies is they're so undervalued because they almost went under, meaning they almost failed during the crisis. The bet now is that they'll come roaring back and you'll make a great upside on your investment.
0: And is that optimism being reflected in the share prices of big firms or all the way across the market, Vijay?
1: You know, what's interesting is we've actually seen a a bit of a a turnaround. For much of 2020, it was really the big companies of the S&P 500 index, for example, and in particular, the very biggest technology giants that were carrying stock market valuations as well as profitability, to be honest. Most of the companies in uh, the Russell 2000 index, which is largely small and medium enterprises, were losing money throughout much of the year and were doing abysmally. In part because small companies tend to be hit harder by crisis, they also had less access to capital compared to the big boys. But what we saw in the last three months is that we hit bottom and the Russell 2000 for the last three months of the year posted a 31% gain. That is the smaller companies far outpaced the S&P index, which rose about 12%. And so we've seen a real turnaround in stock market sentiment. And a recent survey of bosses of SMEs, that is small and medium enterprises, found that two-thirds roughly plan to expand their workforce this year. More than half expect profits to rise. Now, to be clear, it's still a tough time for many small enterprises, especially restaurants and such. But it's a very different attitude and world today than it was six months ago. Do you think that this optimism is really justified? So we can poke at this set of assumptions. I think uh, the stronger assumption is that there is going to be fiscal stimulus and monetary support for the economy. That's probably likely, uh, although President Joe Biden may not get the full $1.9 trillion stimulus. But that comes right on the heels of a bill passed fairly recently for almost that much. In other words, there is a bunch of money coming to the economy, and as well as A monetary posture that's very relaxed in terms of interest rates and support from the Federal Reserve and other entities for companies for corporate debt and so on. So I think broadly speaking, that's probably right. We're not going to fall off a fiscal cliff. However, the idea that the economy will be hunky-dory in the second half of 2021, I think we have to question. Uh, And in particular, the rollout of vaccines has been shambolic in the United States for multiple reasons and we see a number of new variants and mutations of the virus emerging. And so I think the idea that we'll have herd immunity or that almost all Americans will feel safe and comfortable to mix and mingle at sports stadiums and in subways, I think is perhaps a bit of a stretch. It's certainly a risk to this assumption that's underpinning the market's optimism.
0: So how is that uncertainty affecting expectations and the way analysts are thinking about prospects for corporate
1: America and the stock market in 2021. The expectation, as reflected in bets made by institutional investors and the recommendations of Wall Street analysts, is on the optimistic side. There is a strong assumption that the US economy will rebound very sharply, certainly much better than Europe, and that this is going to be positive for the companies in the real economy. Now, there are still some bears when it comes to equity markets that argue that, you know, a lot of these stocks have priced in too much good news, says one. And so it may be that we have the opposite of what happened last year. Uh, In 2020, we had the worst recession in decades, and the equity markets were on a tear. We saw new highs and massive valuations for tech companies and then other sorts of companies across the economy, even though the real economy was, was in absolute dire straits we may very well see the opposite where because stocks have been overbought, let's say, that we see a a roaring economy and we see an anemic stock market. That's one possible outcome. So how should
0: the rest of us think about this? Should we expect a rapid recovery or an economic
1: long COVID? I think the picture looks a little messier going forward. That is, there's so much money sloshing around and not just from the federal government printing money and making available the resources of the Federal Reserve Bank, for example. But also we have trillions of dollars in money market funds. We have a huge amount of consumer savings that has been built up during the pandemic. If the economy does improve, if we have periods of time when they're allowed to go out and spend, I think people are probably going to do that. That's going to keep the economy going. So the outlook is clearly mixed with opportunities and risks aplenty. But the prevailing view In the marketplace is optimism. As one analyst put it to me, we'll still be better off in the second half of 2021 than we were in early 2020.
0: Well, let's hope the optimism on that last score is certainly borne out. Vijay, thanks very much for joining us.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: You can read more about how companies around the world are preparing for the next chapter of the pandemic at Economist.com. And if you're not yet a subscriber, there's a special offer for listeners at Economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the notes for this episode. And finally, Americans are turning to the annual chore of sorting out their taxes, the IRS will start accepting returns on February the 12th, about two weeks later than usual. Because as agonising as this process usually is, this year it's an order of magnitude more so. A battle worth billions of dollars is raging over how to tax the millions of Americans who used to cross state and city lines to get to the office, but for almost a year have been working from home.
2: Tax season's always pretty complicated and stressful for Americans, but this year is going to be particularly difficult.
0: Rosemary Ward is The Economist's New York correspondent.
2: Many taxpayers have experienced big income changes. They've lost regular work or they've lost work altogether. The tax code has been changed multiple times, partly because of President Trump's new tax code. And then there was also the pandemic stimulus packages. But a third reason is an extra complicating factor. Taxing remote workers. Ordinarily, when millions of Americans cross state borders to go to work, the state where they work taxes those workers. But now that millions of Americans are working at home in different states, it's causing a bit of tax envy. Their home states want that money. And in one case, New Hampshire has sued Massachusetts for taxing its residents. The Supreme Court is now looking into it.
0: Rosemary, can you explain to us exactly why New Hampshire is suing Massachusetts? What's the question at issue here?
2: So, New Hampshire is one of about nine states that don't tax ordinary income. This doesn't apply to the about eighty-four thousand New Hampshire residents who work across the border in Massachusetts. Earned income inside Massachusetts by an out-of-state resident is subject to Massachusetts taxes. But this year has been very different because those 84,000 people are working from home. In April, the Department of Revenue in Massachusetts changed the rule, declaring that any income earned by a non resident who used to work in Massachusetts and was now working remotely from out of state will continue to be subject to personal income tax. So New Hampshire saw this as a tax grab. In October, they sued Massachusetts for overtaxing New Hampshire residents for working remotely. So this interests lots of states. Iowa, Hawaii, New Jersey, and Connecticut all filed briefings supporting New Hampshire's complaint telling the court they could lose millions of dollars in violation of the Constitution. The Supreme Court last month looked to the Biden administration to get their take on this issue. So it's probably very likely the court will hear the case because although they don't usually get involved in controversies between two or more states, this one is more serious because it can't be resolved in ordinary ways. New Hampshire's complaint raises economically significant questions that could affect millions of Americans nationwide.
0: Rosemary, if someone's still working for the same company, what does it matter whether they're carrying out that work at home or in the office? What's what's really changed here?
2: I mean, that's a good question because for millions of Americans who live and work in the same state, this is not an issue. But some states: Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Arkansas, Nebraska tax non-residents working remotely for in-state business. And for the most part, governors didn't cause a fuss because there was a pandemic to worry about. But now we're approaching a year, those states would like that income tax for themselves. Money is tight. So when people from neighboring New Jersey and Connecticut commute to New York for a New York-based employer, they pay New York tax on that related income. Most of the time, their home states give uh, credit to those workers. And some states, unfortunately, do actually double tax. But for the most part, they get a credit. But there is a loophole. There's a convenience of the employer rule, which means that if the employee is working outside New York by necessity, then they don't have to pay that tax. Now, mostly up to now, that hasn't been adhered to yet. But I think taxpayers and the neighboring states are saying to themselves, a global
0: pandemic probably qualifies. Do we know how big a problem this is? How many workers might be affected by this or what sort of sums in tax revenue might be at issue?
2: It's huge. Billions of dollars are at stake. Pre-pandemic, 400,000 New Jerseyans crossed the Hudson River every day to New York. Thousands came down from Connecticut New Jersey estimates that it will credit as much as $1.2 billion to its residents for income taxes paid to New York in the 12 months beginning in March 2020, despite very few of those workers crossing the Hudson. Adding to this, according to a Manhattan Institute survey, more than half of the high earning New Yorkers are working entirely from home and 44% are considering leaving the city. A 5% loss of New Yorkers making six figures would result in an annual loss of about $930 million in revenue, which is roughly the amount allocated for the city's health department, which has been doing heroic work in the last year. Another worry is that companies are thinking about leaving too. Goldman Sachs is mulling moving its asset management team to Florida Blackstone, a private equity firm, and Citadel, a hedge fund, are also opening places in Florida, which, like New Hampshire, doesn't have state income tax. And what makes this different in other years when companies hinted that they might leave New York, the employees you know, resisted it. But I'm hearing now that there's very little resistance. So that means that cities which have already seen massive drops in sales tax revenue will start to see even more, including property tax, which makes up about a third of New York City's revenue. And New York's not alone. Most cities and states on the East Coast are going to see huge shortfalls. Philadelphia expects to be about $200 million short of pre-pandemic revenue for this fiscal year.
0: And you can see that this isn't just going to be a short-term issue, is it? Because remote work is likely to stay at some level. What do you expect to happen next with the courts or in the longer term?
2: The world is not going to go back to what it was last March. Upwork, a freelancing website, estimates that 36.2 million Americans will work remotely by 2025, which is about double pre-pandemic levels. So some are saying that cities should cut wage and business rates to persuade firms and workers just to, to stay put. Others on the more progressive side actually want the cities and states to tax the wealthy more, which will probably just drive them away. Some will start to create incentives to benefit businesses to stay. They're unlikely to rewrite the tax code majorly. Most are probably going to wait to see what the Supreme Court does. And the Supreme Court is waiting to hear the opinion of the Biden administration, which it requested at the end of January. If the court doesn't intervene remote workers won't have any recourse but for new york it's hard to imagine what's going to happen if they lose all that money
0: rosemary ward thank you very much
2: thank you patrick lovely chatting with you
0: and thank you for listening to money talks if you enjoy the program please leave us a rating or better yet a review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen it really helps us i'm patrick lane